Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hello all, and welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. I'm delighted to introduce you today, Julia Gover. Julia is a chiropractor and has a specialist interest in pain. Now, this led her to give one of the best TED Talks I have ever seen. So we reached out to her to discuss pain. And in this episode, you can expect to learn what exactly pain is and why it's similar to a fire alarm, why some pain becomes chronic or long term, and how you can be bitten by one of the most venomous snakes in the world and not even notice it. Now, after listening to this episode, I implore you to go and watch her TED Talk. You'll find the links in the show notes below. It's simply fantastic. Now, in other news, if you are looking for some help for your back pain or your pain, head on over to thebackpainpodcast.com and have a look at the provider map. Simply pop in your address and you can find a tried and tested expert to help you with your back pain. Now, we don't let anyone simply to sign up for this. Everyone on there is vetted in order to ensure that you get the best care possible for your problem. As always, if you like what we do, the best compliment you can do or the best compliment you can pay us is to share this with someone, be that a friend, a family member, a colleague or a patient who needs to hear this information. Simply pop it in a WhatsApp group or right now, take a screenshot and pop it on your Instagram story and don't forget to tag us at The Back Pain Podcast. It means the world to us that people do that. That's it from me. I'll leave you now in peace. Enjoy. Julia Gover on the biggest myths about back pain. So, Julia, what is the biggest myth about back pain? Well, there are plenty to choose from. I think as a, as a topic, back pain uh, has a lot of misinformation um, that has sort of become uh, common knowledge or, or general ignorance, I suppose. Um, I, I have some personal favorites. Um, this whole idea that discs slip um, is, is very strange to me as somebody who's been in anatomy labs and seen, you know, um, real spines that have been dissected and just seeing how firmly those discs are, are connected in there and all the really strong ligaments that kind of hold them together. The idea that we would ever describe that as slipping out of place seems, uh, seems kind of it's crazy. It's quite bizarre, yeah. Yeah, very odd. Um, but I, I guess if I had to just pick one myth from the whole panoply of myths that are out there, um, it would be one that kind of underpins a lot of the, the myths. And that would be that pain is always a result of an injury or there's, there's always tissue damage um, where there's pain. So this idea that if something hurts, it must have been harmed. And um, it seems like a, a very logical conclusion to come to. It seems like a very natural thing. You would think you get an injury, you know, your nerves carry pain signals to your brain and, and you feel pain. But it's not really supported by by the research and by by the science out there. So if I had to pick just one myth, it would be it would be that that pain always equals damage of some kind. And that kind of makes sense when you think about it, you know, because most times people experience pain 
you know, on average, it's after they stub their toe, or it's after they've, you know, touched an oven, or you know, you know, burnt their arm getting a pizza out of the oven, like I've done many a time. You know, it's sure. that, you know, and and you can see, oh, I've got a bruise, I've got a cut, I've got a burn, and you can see that damage, and then you know, you can imagine that that's going up to the brain, and we we we're, experience, we're experiencing pain because of that. So, what then? So, why doesn't pain equal damage? You know, what? How's this myth going to come about? And then, what does pain mean if it doesn't mean it's damage? Sure. So, like you say, most of the times when we experience pain, it will be because of an injury. Um, but pain is not the same as tissue damage, or pain is not entirely proportional or equivalent to tissue damage. Um, and because most of the time when we have pain, we have an injury, we always link the two, I think, in our brain. But there are some really important situations that uh, that would make us question that. So we know, for example, that you can have an injury um, or tissue damage or tissue changes with no pain. So um, if you were to take 100 people who have no low back pain and have kind of no history of low back pain and put them through an MRI scanner, research tells us that about between 50 to 80% of them would have something that would show up on their MRI scan such as um, a disc bulge or a disc herniation, um, osteoarthritis, um, you know, wear and tear, all that kind of stuff. And none of those people are feeling pain because of those tissue changes. Um, so we know that you can have an injury with no pain. We know that you can have pain with no injury. Um, migraines, I think, are quite a good example of this because the head pain that accompanies a migraine can be really debilitating. You know, people who suffer with migraines um, often get them very severely. And we know, as um, as clinicians, I suppose, we know that there's no head trauma that goes with that. You know, they ha- they don't get a migraine because they've had a head injury. Um, and afterwards, there's no lasting brain damage or, or anything like that. And the pain is usually gone within a couple of hours. You know, usually the person who's having the migraine has completely recovered within two to three hours. And so you're sort of left asking in that circumstance, well, why, why was that pain, actually? What, what did that mean? What was that pain all about? Um, and also one that I've been thinking about a bit recently is um, we, we talk about heartache a lot, don't we? Um, we often describe grief as, as heartache. And I think partly it's because there's a recognition that there's a sort of emotional pain that goes with grief, but we do also often get that physical chest pain, don't we, as well? And and that's nothing to do with heart disease or, or you know anything like that. It's it's all to do with the kind of emotions that we're feeling at the time. But we're very comfortable using that language when we're describing grief, you know, that we get chest pain or, or heartache. Yeah. Um, and then perhaps to take it to to another level entirely, we know that you can have pain without a body part. Um, so this is known as phantom limb pain. It's reasonably common among amputees. Um, so people who've you know lost a limb due to an accident or injury um, will still get sensations from that limb that is no longer there. Um, I, I heard of a, a case recently uh, a lady had had the, the lower third of her arm amputated and she had the sensation that she was uh, clenching her fist and that her nails were digging into her palm. Um, so it's, it's often very specific sensations and pains that, that people experience with phantom limb pain. It's not a sort of 
vague kind of, oh, you know, the arm that isn't there hurts a bit. It's often very specific sensations that, that people report with phantom limb pain. Um, and we know this is reasonably common among amputees, but it also happens in people who are born without limbs. Um, and again, yeah. that makes you that makes you think it can't be about tissue damage then. If there's no tissue there to be damaged, and in some cases there never has been an arm there to be damaged or a leg there to be damaged, then the experience of pain cannot be linked to tissue damage in those cases. And far from being kind of just slightly unusual, a bit quirky cases, I think actually these three scenarios tell us a lot more about how pain really works and that these mechanisms that we're seeing sort of showing up um, when you have an injury with no pain or pain with no injury or pain with no body part, that actually tells us more about how pain works in the more quote-unquote straightforward case where you have an injury and you feel pain. So it just shows us that there's more going on um, in an experience of pain. I think that's, I think, and that's an important takeaway. It's not, you know, we're not saying that pain never equals damage and you know because you can have damage and it can cause pain because of that burn or because of that you know stubbed toe or that broken ankle but there's a lot more to it than that you know the pain and i think that what we tried to get across in a lot of these episodes a lot of these podcasts is that you know the pain is a huge topic you know and there are so many factors that play into it and you know the, the podcasts that we've done are, are we're scratching the surface really when it comes to when it, when it comes to pain you know the likes of people like you who spent you know the last 10 years since you graduated you know reading and learning and watching and, and doing all this around pain and um it's one of these situations where the more you know you realize that the more there is to know uh, when it comes to Absolutely. this and, and yet yeah, yeah. We, we still don't have all of the answers to this you know you, which is uh, what we're still working on and i think the migraine example is a really fascinating one because that because everybody, I can't say everyone, but the majority of people I'm, I know of will have had a headache of some sort, of some of of some kind at some time in their life, and that's pain. You know, that is pain in their head. You know, and there are many causes of headaches and many different you know reasons for migraine. And you know, the vast vast majority of them are not caused by any damage. You know, they're you know yeah. yes, if you bang your head on a cabinet, then you know that might be slightly different. But the vast majority of migraines aren't caused by anything, and you can go from one minute to having zero pain to five minutes later being people describe as eleven out of ten pain, the worst pain they've ever yeah. had in their life, and then two hours later be completely fine again. You know, and yes, the, the people might have some after effects, but there's no long lasting damage, no long lasting problems. Mm. And I think when you use that migraine as an example, it's really eye opening for a lot of people that you know think, oh, actually, well, I have had a headache and I didn't have any damage, so that's a really good example. So thank you for for bringing that to uh, bringing that up. So if pain isn't about tissue damage, and or in a lot of cases, what what causes it then? What you know, what is this pain? That's a great question, um, and and it has a big answer. Um, I think a good place to start would be if, if we looked at the official definition of pain. Um, so if you look at the official sort of medical definition of pain, um, this pain is described as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience, which I, I think is fairly self-evident. But it also says it is related to or described in terms of actual or potential tissue damage. So really the definition of, of pain here is driving at the idea that pain is really about threat um, rather than just injury. Um, so another way that I like to talk to my patients about this is, is tell them a story. Um, it's a true story and it's quite a famous one um, among kind of 
people like myself who are interested in pain because it happens to a pain researcher. So kind of irony of ironies. <laughs> but um, this is a guy who um, he lives and works out in Australia. And he was walking through the bush one day <clears throat> and scratched his foot on a twig, thought no more of it, uh, continued walking, started to feel quite unwell, vomited and passed out. And that's the last he remembers from that day. He woke up a couple of days later in hospital, having survived the bite of the second most venomous snake in the world. And he had no pain at the time that he was bitten. Um, now, we know, just if you think about the biology of it, you know, he's, he's been bitten, so he's had um, a sort of puncture wound injury, if you like, to his, to his foot. Um, and that venom is, is really poisonous. It would have been wreaking havoc in his tissues, in his leg and in his blood and, and all that good stuff. So he should have been in a lot of pain. Yeah. And the way he kind of rationalizes his experience is to say, well, you know, growing up, I used to scratch my feet on twigs in the bush all the time. Um, and so my brain really just called on past experience and said, no, no, we've been here a hundred times before and there's never been any danger. You know, we're always scratching our feet on twigs. And so even though his nerves must have been, you know, passing up all this information to his brain about what was going on in his leg and about what this venom was doing in terms of tissue damage, his brain had overruled all of that and said, no, no, this isn't really dangerous. There isn't actually any real threat here. And because of that, he didn't experience any pain. Now, the follow-up story to that is that a couple of months later, he was out walking with friends and scratched his foot on a twig. And his brain um, basically said, oh, the last time we were here, we nearly died. I'm going to give you pain like nothing else. And he had, you know, white hot agonizing pain all the way up his leg and into his hip. He was screaming and swearing and shouting and sweating and, you know, and all of that. Um, and it, and it really was just a scratch from a wow. twig this time. Um, so again, his brain had overruled, um, the lack of signals kind of coming from that area and said, I know that you don't think anything is wrong, you know, nerves in the foot or nerves in the leg, but we know that last time we were here, we nearly died. And so we need to protect ourselves from, from this twig wow. um, and produce this massive pain experience. So that's incredible. Um, pain is really about protecting you. And it, it's a whole part of a whole host of protective mechanisms um, that your brain has. But it's really about threat rather than injury. That's fascinating. That's an amazing story. And uh, I said one I, have, one I haven't heard of before. So that's it, it shows the power of the brain to both sides of it, to be able to upregulate and also downregulate, um, you know, to control, to increase pain, but then also the opposite, decrease pain. So that should be a positive story for people listening. And I think that that, that ties in well with what we do because – a lot of people have pain, say back pain, for example, after doing a certain movement, you know, their, their back, you know, if I and air quotes back goes when they've bent down to pick up a laundry basket or they've been able to pick up their sunglasses off the, on the floor and, you know, their back's gone and they've had, they're in a lot of agony. A lot of these patients will then be very fearful of doing a particular movement mm -hmm. like that again. So they'll be very fearful of flexion, that bending forwards, kind of bend down to touch your toes. And it's not that that movement is damaging. That movement isn't the problem. It's the fact that that past experience and, you know, so as soon as you start doing that movement, you know, people 
often, you know, oh, I wouldn't do that. That would be too painful for me to mm. do. And they mm. build this movement up in their head. And then so then they never flex. They never bend forward because that's a bad position for their spine. And this could be anything. This could be lifting. This could be coughing. This could be any particular movement. So then part of our job is to retrain that and, you know, redo that movement and help, you know, encourage that movement to different positions. And an example I use a lot and we've spoken about before is that flexion, bending forward to touch your toes. It is, it's quite a big, it's a gross movement, whereas you can do lots of, movements that place similar stresses on the spine for example lying on your back and pulling your knees up towards your chest or yeah. sitting down in a slump position the spine is doing a very similar movement but often people can do that without any pain and you can draw people's attention to that and say well, actually you know what does this feel like when you do that and they go actually that's actually okay and then you can then extrapolate yeah. that and do more movement and and you know from there and then over time this isn't something that happens overnight of course these these you know pathways have to be unpacked as you know if they've developed over 10 years of a fear of movement it's not going to change overnight but you know through practice and repetition this is what exercise does you know it helps unpack yeah. these, uh, these these pathways and train new pathways that don't hurt so i think that's you know kind of an extrapolation of that snake bite story which i uh, f- found really interesting i think i'll probably start using that with some uh, with some patients actually when they're when they're ready to hear that it's interesting that you bring up back flexion because I think I could have picked that as another one of my favorite myths you know this whole idea that bending is bad for your back and that you have to you know sit up perfectly ramrod straight and you mustn't bend when you're lifting anything you know um to say that your back is not supposed to bend is about as silly as saying that your elbow is not supposed to bend (laughs) they are designed to do that um and it is safe to do that so um, yes, that's that's a common one that I come across. And if you never ever bent your elbow and then tried to pick up something really heavy, which involved bending your elbow, it would probably be a little bit sore and a bit uncomfortable. Exactly. So understandably, you then avoid it more, and then that's how that kind of cycle kind of cycle perpetuates. Yeah, but the more you do it, the stronger it gets, and the, our bodies are very very adaptable. <laughs> so we talked about those nerves and those nerves in the feet, and then sending up those those messages to the brain. Are these pain nerves so are these nerves which are you know just send pain up to the brain they send pain messages that the the brain overrides or are these just regular nerves that also send all the other information well um i i think i seem to remember and maybe you can jog my memory a bit here rob because we trained together didn't we so Mm -hmm. i'm sure that we learned in neuroanatomy that there are specific pain nerves right we used to have to draw them with that blue pencil yeah and um actually that just really isn't the case. Um, and I think what a what a lot of people learn about in terms of you know pain nerves when they're when they're in training. Um, I'm going to start that one again. As well. Yeah, of course. So, <laughs> um, so I'm sure that I learned when I was at chiropractic college that there are specific you know nerves for pain. Um, but actually, this this isn't really the case. And I think there's a bit of confusion here um, about pain the experience um, and what is actually going on in the body. So um, again, I'm going to dip into a bit of neuroscience here, but I'm going to, because I spend a lot of time explaining this to patients, I'm going to, I'm going to do it in a way that is relatively easy to understand. So I often tell my patients that we have lots of different types of nerves in our body um, and they all kind of speak a different language. Um, So, you will have nerves that have little receptors on the end, and these are like sensors. And when these sensors are activated by something specific, the nerves start to get a bit chatty. You know, they start chatting. Um, So you will have, say, this nerve over here has sensors that only respond 
to heat. And then you have this nerve over here that has sensors that only respond to pressure. Um, and when they are activated, so when those sensors pick up heat or pressure, those nerves will start to chatter in their language. So the heat nerve will only say heat, 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 getting a bit hot. And the pressure nerve will say, oh, touch, bit of pressure, bit of touch, bit of pressure. Um, and that's really all they can say. Now, what we used to be taught of as um, pain nerves are actually a, a type of nerve called a nociceptor. And they are a little bit different. So they do not have anything specific. They do not have any specific sensors on the end of their, their nerve. They, they kind of react to everything, but they're what we call high threshold nerves. So they take a lot to activate them. So really, when they are activated, what they say is, or the only thing they can say is, there's a whole lot of something going on. Because they're not specific. They don't know what exactly is going on. They haven't got specific sensors. But whatever it is, there's quite a lot of it. So that's kind of what they say. All of that information from those nerves, so, you know, the nerve over here saying heat, heat, and the nerve over here saying pressure, pressure, and then this nerve in the middle, the nociceptor, saying there's a whole lot of something. All of that information gets passed first to the spinal cord, and then that goes up to the brain. And the brain has to sort of evaluate what all this might mean. Now, it's important to point out at this stage that none of these nerves that are starting to chatter are saying pain, pain, pain. pain. You know, they're only saying heat, pressure, or a whole lot of something. <laughs> and the brain has to then kind of evaluate what this means. So we know there's some heat, we know there's some pressure, we know that there's a fair bit of it because these nociceptors have now been activated. We're going to think about our past experience, you know, like we said in that snake bite story, you know, we think about our past experience. Have we been in a situation similar to this before? We're going to ask other parts of the brain. So parts responsible for sight and sound and smell. Where are we? What are we doing? Um, is there a lot of stress hormones in our blood? Are we feeling a bit threatened and a bit stressed? Um, and taking all of that into account, it's your brain that says pain. So only your brain can, can speak that language that says pain. And it then produces the experience of pain, which is superimposed or projected onto the body part where all that information was coming from. So, um, so importantly, it's only our brain that can decide whether or not we're in pain. Um, but it takes into account all this other information from all these other nerves that are speaking slightly different languages. So, you know, I mean, do, can we call pain an output then from the brain rather than input? So it's the brain that then decides based on all of these factors. So from that previous experience about kicking sticks and then the previous time that, you know, you burnt yourself and then the, the smell at the time, all those things, it builds on all of these and then decides that, yes, this is a, a threat to our body. So then it then develops yeah. pain ideally to make you go and lie down in a dark cave and get away from the problem, get away from that saber-toothed tiger or whatever it is that, you know, our evolutionary bodies are dictated to do, I guess. Um, you know, so it's an output from the brain. Is that correct? Would you would you call it that? Yes. Yes, I would say that. It's, um, it's certainly not an input from the body. So, like I say, there are no nerves that, that sort of speak the language of pain. Um, they take raw data to the brain. And, yeah, it 
an output from the brain is a is a, a good way of putting it. It's an output yeah. from the brain and not something that has come in from your body. So I, I guess one thing which we have to be careful about when talking about this kind of brain's involvement with pain is that if this is not explained well, you know, as well as you have done, and I'm sure lots of people, you know, it's a very complex topic to try and get across, is that something which we hear probably all the time is, oh, that person said all the pain was in my head. And I know that we're saying that all pain is in your head. That's what pain is. You know, your brain's decided it. But what people are implying by that is that he thinks I'm making it up, that I'm making up the pain or I'm extrapolating the pain a lot worse than it is. So, you know, is pain, you know, did you see what I mean in terms of, you know, of of that? So we have to be careful about how we we phrase this and how we, you know, do it correctly. Definitely. Because the last thing you want to do is invalidate somebody's experience of pain. So, um, Again, I, I quite like analogies and stories. I don't know if you can tell, but the analogy that I tend to use with patients is like a fire alarm. So you can have a fire alarm that goes off in a house fire. You can have a fire alarm that goes off when you burn the toast. Um, you can have a fire alarm that goes off because its battery is running low. And regardless of what is driving you know, the reason for that fire alarm going off, the noise it makes is always the same. So the... It, experience, if you like, of that fire alarm going off is the same every time. It's just a different thing that's driving it. And with pain, you know, anytime that that pain experience is triggered, it's real and it's valid. It just probably doesn't always mean what people think it means um, because it's part of a protective mechanism and your body does more than just protect you from tissue damage. So really you are responding to um, threats and that threat may or may not be linked to an injury. So, um, yeah, you know, but the experience is just as real each time. The fire alarm sounds exactly the same. Yeah. So um, you're right. Like, if this is explained badly, people tend to think, oh, he thinks I'm making it up, or he's just saying that it's um, purely a psychological problem, or, you know, whereas actually we would say pain is often driven by lots of different things. Yeah. It's actually very rarely just one thing that... Um, that starts that experience of pain. Um, so again, like we were saying, you know, the brain has to take into account all this different chatter from different nerves and sort of weigh that up and decide yeah. if it's going to trigger this experience of pain. And, um, and on top of that, people respond very differently to pain. So you have some people who um, want to just kind of push through the pain. You have other people who want to stop doing everything completely and kind of withdraw from life and somewhere in the middle. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely more than one thing that starts that experience of pain. Um, but in, in the sense that it's an experience produced by our brain, then yes, like 100% of the time for all of us, our pain is in, their he- in our head. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not real. Yeah. And I think, yeah, validating someone's pain is so important. Um, you know, the pain that if anyone's listening now and they're in a lot of pain, your pain is real. You know, you're not making it up. Your pain is real. Whatever that pain is, whatever the type of pain, however you described it, your pain is real. You know, that, and that's it. And that's uh, if someone's not taking you seriously, then find someone different, basically. Yeah. So yeah. we talked a little bit, you mentioned, touched a little bit there about language um, and about the language that kind of us clinicians use to kind of explain these stories and things to patients. So how does the language that we as clinicians use or as patients use, you know, impact pain? You know, can this make pain better or worse just by our words? Hugely, yeah, absolutely. Um, pain, we've discussed, haven't we? Pain is about threat. Yeah. And words can 
create a sense of threat. In fact, words are very good at creating a sense of threat. If you've ever read a really good crime novel, you know, you, you can be reading it and your heart will be racing and, um, you know, you'll, you'll be really invested in it like that. So words are very good at creating a sense of threat or a sense of reassurance and, and calm. Um, and I, I find this most often with the, the patients I deal with. So just, um, just by way of context, most of my patients have um, what I would call persistent musculoskeletal pain. So they've perhaps had an injury in the past or had a sort of um, musculoskeletal pain in the past, and it, their pain has persisted longer than their injury would have. Um, and usually they've gone through several different courses of painkillers, imaging, you know, all that kind of stuff um, before they get to me. And I find most of this kind of work with language that I have to do is usually around their, their MRI scan. So I will have a patient who will come to me with their MRI scan and say, um, you know, my, my doctor had a look at this. Um, he said, you know, we've looked at your scans. We've seen multi-level disc degeneration and facet osteoarthritis. Uh, there's no cure for either of those. Um, and you're not really a candidate for surgery. So you're going to have to learn to live with it. Um, and generally what I then have to do, I'll obviously have a look at their MRIs and check that there's nothing sinister on there, but, um, I have to completely reframe that because like, like I mentioned before, a lot of people, if you put them through an MRI scanner would have these little abnormalities or, um, you know, bits and pieces of wear and tear and, and age. And that, that is all normal. And I think there's a real risk that we, um, over pathologize that or we, we turn it into a disease process um, when it's actually normal. So I, I will tell patients the only place that a textbook spine exists is in a textbook because in a textbook, this spine has never been used. So that's why it looks so lovely and pristine. Um, but I, I will often have to say to people, look, you know, I've had a look at your scans. I don't see anything concerning. There, there are some changes in your tissues, but these are all normal for your age and very likely they're not contributing to your pain. Um, and then again, another analogy, I like to say they're a bit like wrinkles on the inside. Um, so I am 34 now and I have two young children. I have, you know, quite a lot of wrinkles around my eyes from lack of sleep and all that jazz. Um, but I, I say to people, you know, my wrinkles don't hurt. There's definite tissue changes there, but they're not painful. And they're not evidence of a disease process. They're, they're evidence that I've smiled a lot in my 34 <laughs> years of life. So, um, you know, you have to think of these sort of incidental findings on your MRI, like wrinkles on the inside. You know, it's just evidence that you've used your back and they're, they're all perfectly normal and they don't contribute to pain. Um, being frightened of them will contribute to pain, but that's, you know, we've discussed that already. Um, so then I just kind of reassure people, I want to find the right combination of things that will be helpful for you with your pain, because it's usually more than one thing that's driving it. Um, we can reduce your pain and get you back to doing the things that you love to do. Um, so, so language is really important in how you understand, and using medical jargon is a really good way of frightening people, um, because most people, um, you know, through no fault of their own, don't really understand what we're talking about when we say things like, multi-level disc degeneration you know if i said that to you you and i would have a good idea what that meant um but that just sounds horrific to yeah. the average person on the street um so it's really important oh, not to 
use those labels, I think. And then when people um, then come in with, you know, when these are tried to explain in layman's terms and then these other phrases get used like crumbling spine and, you know, oh. this this you know, wear and tear and, you know, those type of phrases that get thrown around. And, mm. you know, if you've got a patient that's told they've got multi-level disc degeneration, also known as a crumbling spine, you know, or whatever, and then they've, and then yeah. they're sat in front of me or you or someone else who's then trying to get them to do some exercises, they're not going to yeah. feel very strong or capable or stable where, you know, whereas if we say, yeah, you have, you know, some normal age related change, you know, which is probably the same as everyone else who's 75. Um, so yeah. your spine is perfectly strong and stable, carry on doing all, you know, everything as you would do normally, yeah. which one, you, which, which patient is more likely to going to want to do some exercises yeah. and going to want to do something. So that language, and then it also drives, goes back to that past experience. You know, if you have, yeah a family member who has arthritis or who's been told they've had arthritis, you know, and your grandmother say, and she's been suffering with back pain for, for 60 years and she's had arthritis. And then you've now, you've been told you've got arthritis. That past experience of that phrase arthritis or any other term that, w that we've yeah. used, you know, you're going to draw on all those experiences of your memories of your, your grandmother who's who was in pain mm. for 50 years. So, you know, that also then goes back to almost like that snake bite story, you know, that you, yeah. how your brain will draw on all of these different, thoughts experiences all the daily mail headlines saying you know arthritis is crippling and all those type of things yeah, you know yeah. so it's a it's a really fascinating topic how this language can you know overtake our experience um, of pain i'm glad you brought up arthritis in particular because again this is something i come across a lot we we throw around the term arthritis um and there are actually lots of different types of arthritis so if I have a patient sitting in front of me and I say, oh, you've got arthritis in your knee, like you say, their, their family member might actually have a different type of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, which is a completely different um, disease process. And their expectations then will be like, oh, I'm going to have these chronic, you know, flare ups. I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to need steroids. I'm going to need, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so like I say, that past experience all plays on it. I actually very rarely um, give people a quote-unquote proper diagnosis now. I actually find it much more helpful rather than giving them a label to just explain what's actually happening in very kind of neutral language. Um, so I, I can't remember the last time I told someone, oh, yeah, I can see some arthritis on your scan because... Good. Like you say, people come to that word with all kinds of expectations. And yeah, there's pre-connotations all going through their head. So, you know, if you for everyone listening, you know, as I said, that this is the back pain podcast. There are people listening to this who have a lot of pain, you know, I'm sure. What messages would you like everyone with long-term or even short-term pain to hear? You know, how would you kind of sum up this kind of experience of pain and, you know, some takeaway messages for, for people to feel positive and feel strong about their pain and, you know, get better oh. from it i mean we've touched on a lot of them already um but i i spend most of my time with with patients underpinning sort of three main main ideas um firstly that that we're not fragile um so again going back to those anatomy labs that i did in in my training you know your back is incredibly strong um you know your discs and the bones in your spine and all the really strong ligaments that support them um, you have a lot of very robust structures in your back um, on top of that you know the whole back third of your spine is joints that are designed to move so you've got a lot of stability and a fair bit of mobility in your spine and that's that's what it's designed for um, I, I read recently actually that um, 
there was a, a cadaver study, so um, a, a study done on uh, a spine that had been sort of donated to science after after the person had passed away, and they took just the top seven bones of the spine, so what we would consider the neck, and they put a straight down vertical force on it and measured how how much pressure the neck could take before anything ruptured or, or slit or anything like that. And your neck can hold 60 pounds of pressure straight down vertically before anything gets injured. Um, now, that's heavier than anything I am ever going to put on my head. So I'm very reassured yeah. by that study. Um, you know, even even the smallest part of our spine is incredibly strong and incredibly robust to that kind of pressure. So, you know, you can be reassured that, that you are not a fragile structure. Um, the second thing I, I always like to tell people is that movement is really the best thing you can do. Um, so again, we've touched on this already. If you never bent your elbow and then tried to do some heavy lifting, it would hurt. Um, but repeated movement and um, repeated exercise and things like that um, is really good for your back. We know that movement is really good for your back. Um, incidentally, I mean, we're currently recording this uh, just towards the end of lockdown three. Um, movement also really good for your mental health. So a walk a day has been shown to be as effective as antidepressants for mild to moderate depression. So um, movement will go a long way to helping with pain um, and also with your mental health too. Um, and then the third thing that I always like to sort of reassure people with is that um, it is entirely possible to get better. There's, there seems to be this, again, another myth out there that once you've got back pain, you'll always have back pain, you'll always have a bad back. Um, I've had patients tell me that their doctors have told them that they'll probably die with back pain, which um, is not a very cheerful thought and not a very accurate one either. Um, there That's is awful. nothing about the biology or the neurology of back pain that would suggest that it is permanent. Um, your body is perfectly capable of healing. So, you know, we have immune systems which are constantly working to heal and repair and protect us. And we're really used to that, aren't we, when we see it in our skin. Um, you get a cat scratch or a paper cut. We're, we're very blasé about the fact that, oh, yeah, that'll just heal up. We often don't extend that same face to the bits of our body that we can't see, like our spine and our joints and our discs. Um, but those same immune cells are, are working away inside of us as well, um, getting us better. Um, and also, I mean, this is a fairly big debate at the moment, I suppose, within the pain science community as to whether we can quote unquote cure chronic pain or whether we just have to teach people to live well with their pain. Again, looking at the, the neuroscience of it and the neurobiology of it, like there, there is nothing that suggests to me that pain has to be permanent. Um, nerves change how they're wired all the time. It's kind of what they do. It's what they're really good at. It's how we learn. It's how we grow. It's how we change. So nerves are really good at that and I think um, changing your perception of pain changing your behaviors around pain um, all of that can be can be really valuable so I, I like to reassure people that it's entirely possible and very likely that that they will get better when they have that thing fantastic I think that's a really encouraging note to, to end on to uh to, to wrap up today's you know fascinating episode i've really enjoyed today's episode and you know julie the reason we got you on was because of your incredible ted talk um which we'll link to um 
link to in the show notes. So I really encourage everyone to go and watch that episode. It's how long is it? It's only eleven minutes or something like that. It's, eleven minutes. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, a <laughs> very, very short. It must have been an amazing experience. But no, it's a really good good TED talk, and you speak really eloquently all about this. The, you know this pain science world. So you know I think it's up to about twenty thousand views or something on YouTube now. So it's, oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, that's so good it's to know. Thank some, you very much. Give or take. So it's doing doing very well. So thank you for for putting that out there and kind of you know putting your name out there. I'm sure that was a quite a nerve wracking experience. So. Well, yeah, but thank you for, for asking me to come on. I always jump at the opportunity to talk about this because I think there are so many myths and misinformations around pain in general, but back pain in particular. And we know that it's a, a leading cause of absenteeism at work and a leading cause of disability worldwide. So I, I always jump at opportunities to talk about this. So thank you so much for, for inviting me on your podcast. I've really enjoyed chatting to you about it today. Fantastic. Thank you, Thor. Thank you for joining us. Do you have any resources that you can direct people to, um, either for you or any of the resources which you find that patients might find beneficial or clinicians might find beneficial? Uh, well, for me, so I do online consultations now that's um, purely for pain management. I do see people in person as well um, in my role as a chiropractor, but I also do online consultations for pain management. So um, if you go to my clinic website which is flourishchiropractic.co.uk um, and uh, you can book in with me through there but in terms of general research I mean um, so if you want a really good data book um, that's really easy to read and uh, much like me just like to tell stories about pain that are very interesting um, Laura Mosley, who's the guy who got bitten by the snake um, has written a book called Painful Yarns which is just a collection of stories and they're just designed to get you thinking about um, pain being a bigger experience than just tissue damage. It's a really easy, very entertaining read. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I use a lot of the analogies in there when I talk to patients as well. So that would be a good place to start, I think. Fantastic. And the other one, just to add to that, which I find very beneficial, is a book by Jared Hall called Sticks and Stones, um, which yeah, is a, a, a collection of about 50 analogies for explaining pain um, for both clinicians and for patients. So that's a, a book I'm currently working my way through at the moment. And it's uh, I found very beneficial, actually. So uh so I'd encourage people to reach out and grab that. Well, well, thank you so much for joining us, Julia. Um, it's been a really fascinating episode and I hope that we can invite you back for a part two at some point in the future. I'd love that. Thanks very much. Fantastic. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you have a great day. Over and out. Bye.